We want to start this episode by acknowledging the Gadigal and the Wongal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this very podcast. We also pay our deep respect to Elders past, present and future, always was, always will be. This podcast may contain discussions about violence, drug use, and it's most definitely going to contain a lot of foul language. I'm sorry, Hi, hi, hello. Hey, 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 hello. Tonight we're doing authors. Another one you probably don't like very much mm. because you're... You're all about the celebs. It's really ridiculous. I thought you were smarter than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I'm we should... I'm honestly kidding. We'll just ask the people if they want to turn the beat around. Them. And do you want to like <laughs> drop a beat? Boots and cats and boots and cats. We're doing the beat generation. Yeah. We are. That was uh, my funny intro into the that beat That was really generation. good. <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God, there's so many songs with beat I could use. I just stared at Cara like, what? I thought we weren't going to sing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that won't happen. No, that'll never happen. No. Um, I'm going to go first. Kick it off. All right, I will. Fucking do it. Uh, Jean-Louis... Lebris de Kerouac was born March 12th. I've written 1992, <laughs> so not correct. I'm so sorry, that was the biggest laugh that probably hurt people's ears. <laughs> Let's make that 1922 in Lowell, Massachusetts. So much stuff lately that I've been doing has been based in Massachusetts. I'll tell you about it next week, but it's wild. Interesting. Uh, his parents, Leo Alcide, like hyphenated. Interesting. Also. Um, and Gabrielle Ange were French-Canadian immigrants. Leo owned a print shop and Gab's work from home. <laughs> and she didn't like work from home like we work from home now. She just was a house person. Yeah, she ran that shit. She ran the house. She raised that shit. She ran that shit. That Thank shit's you. a job. Jack had an older brother, Gerard, and an older sister, Caroline. Um, and the family spoke only French at home. And it wasn't until Jack was well into his teens that he spoke English, like, confidently. But he had a sexy accent. Yeah. I find it very attractive. Mm. In 1928, when Jack was four, his brother, Gerard, who was only nine, died of rheumatic fever. I feel like everyone's older brother dies. Mm. Um, I don't have one. No. So that's lucky Neither, because he died. No, I'm joking. I never (laughs) had one. That's fucked. Sorry. But I feel like a lot of people that we have done lately have dead older brothers anyway. Jack later said that Gerard's ghost followed him around like a guardian angel. Mm. Um, and Jack, little Jack, was understandably deeply affected by his brother dying. Um, and he became a really serious little kid. And he was obsessed with God. Oh, no. I know, another one of these. 
Some kids like trains or M&M, but this kid, his thing was God. Right. Um, his mother was... JC a, in the house of God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his mother was a devout Catholic, um, and after the death of her son became even more so, like, really obsessed and went to church every day and, like, was constantly, like, praying all the time. That was a great face. I wish everyone could see the face of Amber praying because it was, like, <laughs> eyes in the back of her head. It was very, like, like um, a Pentecostal. Kind of, Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. We'll take a picture maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Jack's dad, Leo, Mm. not to be confused with Leonardo DiCaprio. Season three, episode one. uh, He turned his back on God and he embraced the same religion as me. Booze. Love it. Um, He was also into gambling and smoking and I'm not so much. Actually, I fucking hate gambling. It's so dumb and fucked and I can't believe that they allow it. It's really fucked in this country as well. It's really bad. Yeah. Anyway, Leo was fucking pissed off with God. And I get it, your child died. It would be so hard to believe that there's a God that would let that happen. Like, how? I don't get it. He was so pissed off that one time, like walking down the street, and they saw this rabbi walking down the street, and he just like violently pushed him into the street and was like abused him because he Ooh, likes no. God. Mm-mm-mm. And then another time, Gabs invited like their priest around for dinner or to hang out or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Whatever you do with the priest. <laughs> um, and he came home really tr- drunk and angry and like kicked him out of the house, like really like pulled him along by his collar and was like, get out of here. Oh. I was like, I hate. God. Oh. Yeah. He was done with that shit. Meanwhile, Jack at six had had his first confession and he has to six. say. Yes. And he has to say a rosary for penance after. So is this Catholicism? Mm-hmm. Is it, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and during his penance thing, he heard the voice of God telling him uh, that he had a good soul but that he would, quote, suffer in life and die in pain and horror. Wow. So he came up with that at six. I I mean, if a six-year-old came up to me and said, I'm a good person, but I'm probably going to suffer in life and die in pain and horror, I think I'd be really frightened. Yeah, I'd say let's go get a paddle pop and just talk this (laughs) out because it's just really... It's okay, buddy. Just got to relax. That's real sad, actually. It is. Also, God told him that in the end he would receive salvation. Well, that's a silver lining, I guess. (laughs) I just feel like religion is really fucked up for little kids. Yeah. Like, don't teach little children all that hell stuff and all that fear. It's just so, to me, evil to do that. Uh, I think it's really dangerous as well to kind of implant these notions into like the, you know, very, in the developmental stage, your formative years, like trying to indoctrinate them into this way of thinking. Yeah. Which is just fucked and not true. They have no, they should be able to educate, grow up, decide what they want to do. It's not about, you know, there's, it's about, for me, 
teaching people to decipher what is right and what is wrong. And that's not based on religion in any way or form. No, you shouldn't have to threaten eternal suffering if you don't do something no. That you should do. You know You know what I mean? Like, I'm a relatively nice person and I don't do it because I'm afraid of damnation. No, no, I just do it because <laughs> it feels good to be a nice person. Because it's just it feels kind of like the right to thing to do. a bad person? Yeah. And like, you know, you could just be like a chill mate and be cool with it. And like, just, just help be, out people. Just be chill, guys. <laughs> chill. Chill. Yeah, good chat. That was, I, I agree. Um, Anyway, Jack grew up to be a pretty good footy player. Ooh. Uh, and he got, yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and he got himself a scholarship to Columbia University, which is fancy AF. Yeah. Uh, but he broke his leg in his oh, first shit. year there. And then once he was, like, healed, he just, like, would get into constant fights with the coach who was then like, fuck you, and just benched him for his whole second year there. So he didn't really play and he was a bit like, fuck this, and later dazed out of uni. But he stayed in New York City where he lived with his future wife, Edie Parker, Mm. Um, and it was during this time that he met the friends who would become the Beat Generation. He met Allen Ginsberg, Neil Cassidy, Lucian Carr and... William S. Burroughs. Whoop, whoop. Coming up, you know, after this. Don't miss it. Yeah. Um, Get in there. <laughs> it's the bloody A-team. The jazz-obsessed 1940s Alco weirdos. Fucking the creme de la creme mm-hmm. of fun guys. Yeah. Anyway, for some dumb reason, in 1942, Jack joined the Marines. Mm-hmm. He hated it. Uh, but he did manage to write his first novel, The Sea is My Brother, yeah. which Jack described as, quote, a man's simple revolt from society as it is with the inequities, frustration and self-inflicted agonies, which sounds right up my alley. I fucking love miserable <laughs> books. Um, but Jack viewed this book as a failure and he actually never even tried to get it published. Yeah. Uh, but you can read it now. As it was published in 2011, uh, 40 years after his death, which is a bit of a spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) What? Huh? Um, Also, I have some feelings about publishing books after the author is dead. Yeah, this is interesting because I feel like this is very pertinent to both of these people as well. I just think it's terrible to do that. Yeah. Like, he didn't want it published. It's greed, really, isn't it? They want money and they want something that's yeah. attached to a successful person. Mm. And people will buy it. Of course they will because they love that also because of the other things they've done. So like, they're just like itching for more content and they can't because he's carked it. Like he's, he's, do you know Jack Kerouac is I think one of maybe the only author who all of his books are still in print. Wow. All of them. Like, can you just have the ones, can we make enough money out of that? Like, why yeah. are we, I don't know. But on the other hand, I'm kind of like, what does he care? He's dead. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. they did that with um, Harper Lee's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was unpublished book. Yeah, maybe like five, ten years ago. That's recent for me. Maybe they all mentioned one. Something like that. Yeah. Between ten and five years ago. 
But, yeah, and she didn't want that published. Yeah, and, like, I trust that Harper Lee, I mean, she's a very reclusive person. It's like. She was also a really good writer and a really good editor. Yeah. So, so I, there's a reason she for would that. Know if she was not She yeah. didn't feel like it was up to scratch. She fucking edited all of Capote's shit. Yep. Can't remember. Season one. Yeah. Possibly season two. <laughs> Sometime before this. <laughs> we spoke about Capote. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, that's a long rant. But it does really piss me off and I don't know. I think it's interesting because I, I didn't automatically think about that when I wrote my part, but that is definitely, that happens. But it didn't really spring to the forefront of my mind. But now that you say that, it's like these people, this is actually, this is their job, this is their lifeblood, it's what they do. So they make a decision for a particular reason and then it's just like thrown out the window mm. because they're no longer there to, you know, enforce that decision that they've probably made consciously. And yeah, they don't like it. Thought. They don't want it done out. They don't want it out in the world attached to his, their name. Yeah. You know? Anyway, whatever. In 1943, he then joined the Navy. But he only served eight days of actual service before he was put on the sick list. According to a medical report, uh, Jack had asked for an aspirin for a headache and then they diagnosed him uh, with dementia precoxy, which I'm not sure how that is pronounced. But anyway, it was an early term for schizophrenia. What for? Oh. Um, and the medical examiner said his adjustment to the military wasn't going very well and quoted Jack as saying, I can't stand it, I like to be by myself. And you're oh. like, yeah, military and life's clearly not for you, Jackie boy. No. He was honourably discharged on psychiatric grounds and diagnosed with schizoid personality, which seems like a bit of an overreaction to me, but, hey, I'm not a doctor. Yeah. They probably won't either. <laughs> yeah, they're just some medical guy. <laughs> so he went back to New York City uh, and had a nice time with his mates again. He married his girlfriend, Edie Parker, who was also a writer and a fairly good one, I believe. And it didn't last, unfortunately, and the marriage was annulled in 1948. More about that later. Um, he then moved in with his parents, who had moved to Queens, and this was where he wrote his first published novel, The Town and the City, and he also started working on ideas for On the Road. The Town and the City was published under John Kerouac. Mm. Um, and it had really good reviews, but it didn't sell. And I feel like it's important to say here that it was heavily edited. 400 pages were taken out. Oh, wow. Which is heaps. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like it's not too much of a, like, reflection on Jack. Like, that's, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's weird. But, I mean, he took that personally, didn't he? Like, he was upset about that, yeah. right? Which he would be. Yeah. I get it. We're looking at our listens every day. <laughs> yeah, every day. Does anybody like us? We message each other and be like, oh my God. Thanks, it's, guys. It's exciting. Thanks <laughs> for listening to us. Uh, Jack then married his second wife, Joan Haverty, and began work on his uber-famous book, On the Road, mm. which, if you don't know, is mostly autobiographical account of road trips 
that Jack had done around the US and Mexico with his mate, Neil Cassidy. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, just a little trivia here, Jack couldn't drive and Neil did all the driving. Oh. Um, he did eventually learn how to drive when he was 34, but he never, ever actually held a driver's license. Yeah, right. That's interesting because he grew, he grew up in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. So, and then he event, like he moved to New York. Yeah, so. where you wouldn't need a car. You wouldn't in New York, but you no. would in Massachusetts, right? Yeah, you would think so. But he went straight from school to university. Right. Um. Anyway, it's weird to me. Yeah, then you'd be on a, like a university. I don't know. America just seems like such a vast, vast place. But hey, well, what am I talking about? Because we live in Australia. <laughs> yes, we don't know. It's rather vast. It's also very vast. Vast. We're both licensed drivers. Yeah, like I can't really talk <laughs> because I only just recently <laughs> yeah, got my driver's license. still got it. And I'm like 141 years old. And you're looking great. Oh, thank you. Uh, Jack wrote the first version of the book in three weeks and then later the final version in 20 days while his wife fed him Benzedrine, cigarettes, bowls of pea soup and mugs of coffee to keep him alive. Just That's nonstop. true love. That's all he had for 20 <laughs> days. Not super nutritious but better than David Bowie with his cocaine, peppers and milk mm. episode it's something. It's the milks that really... Ugh. Yeah, it's yucky. Pea uh, soup sounds good with a bit of Benzedrine. <laughs> yeah, yummy. He needs more booze in there, mm. but whatever. Um, before he began writing, he did a little craftenoon and he cut <laughs> up sheets of tracing paper to fit the typewriter and then he, like, glued them all together to create one long-ass scroll. Right. And that way he could just keep typing and typing with ever, like, so he never had to reload the paper. Didn't have to genius. like break the the moment. Yeah. Um, and there were also no chapters or paragraph ba- breaks. You just like it was just like blah, 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 blah. um you know what that means? Blah, 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 blah. Oh I know. On forever and ever. <laughs> yeah. He had no time to press enter. I get it. It's such a chore. It is. Um no wait. So Jack called his writing spontaneous writing. He wanted to get the words to just pour out of him with no interruptions. That sounds nice. He's going to clean it up. The general myth around the book was that Jack wrote the whole thing in those 20 frenzied days, but apparently he had actually been working on it for years, like not with major drafts or mm. anything. I'm not going to get into it with everybody about that. Yeah, but there's truth to it. but He knew what he was doing. He had a plan and he followed it. Like he was a real writer. He just didn't like luckily come up with it. And yeah. I think that's important to know. Uh, and look, it wasn't actually published straight away um, and he had to travel around a bit more trying to earn money in the time in between. He found time for writing though, uh, completed what he considered to be his life's work in Vanity of Dilutes. I've not read that one. Sorry, Jack. Um, he lived with his sister on and off for some time in North Carolina and there he got into meditation and studying Buddhism. Oh. Joan, his wife, left and divorced him in 1951 and he just travelled around a bit more, writing, drinking, getting really depressed, just like fun stuff like that. 
He got a lot of work done though um, and he had a lot of experiences that he wrote about in his later novels. He was still trying to get On the Road published but publishing houses weren't really interested because they all thought it was too weird and there was too much like sexy stuff and back then you could get charged with obscenity for like that stuff. The, yeah. the book was jam-packed with, like, drug use, gay sex and yeah. threesomes and stuff. Mm-hmm. His mates, William Burroughs, which I'm sure you'll talk about, and Alan oh, Ginsberg, they were both charged with obscenity. So he was like... So after that happened, I think publishing houses were like, I don't really want to get involved with you yeah. beat freaks. <laughs> <laughs> beat it. It's like, come on, guys, just a little literary obscenity. Mm. Chill out. Finally, though, the book was published in 1957 through Viking Press, although they took all the sexy stuff out and replaced all his friends' real names with pseudonyms. And I'd love to be able to read The Ridge. The yeah. so good. There is sexy parts in it. Yeah, but... The gay sex. Oh. And I think there's quite other more sexy sex. Right. Sexier sex. Oh, I want to read that too. <laughs> Me too. Get Viking Press on the phone, as I always say. <laughs> yeah. Why don't, why don't we call them? I think we just get them on the line. Jack said that on the road, quote, was really a story about two Catholic buddies roaming the country in search of God, and we found him. I found him in the sky, in Market Street, San Francisco, and Dean, Neil Cassidy, had God sweating out his forehead all the way. There is no other way for the holy man. He must sweat for God. And once he has found him, the Godhood of God is forever, established and really must not be spoken about. Wow. Okay, mate. <gasps> Woo. Like it started out like, okay, okay. And then like, no, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. No. <laughs> <laughs> His biographer, Douglas Brinkley, said that On the Road has been misinterpreted as a tale of friends out looking for kicks. But the most important thing to comprehend is that Kerouac was an American Catholic author. Oh, stop it. <laughs> For example, virtually every page of his diary bore a sketch of a crucifix, a prayer. Uh, yeah, because it was ingrained in him and he feels constant guilt. I agree. Bravo. I just always thought it was about two friends looking for kicks and I still enjoyed it. I'm going to keep believing it's about two friends looking for kicks. Yeah. Dana's you get your kicks. a fucking asshole though. Um, I kind of sort of thought it was about realising your fun friend is a dickhead. Well, he is. Dean's a real jerk. Okay, Jack moved into a cute little house in Orlando, Florida, Ooh. just before the book was published. Orlando magic. They probably weren't around then. <laughs> I don't know, I doubt it. A few weeks later, the New York Times published a review of On the Road naming Jack as the voice of a generation. That's you, Amber. And from here on, he was considered a major American writer. Right. He and his mates, Ginsburg and Burroughs, became widely known as the Beats, the Beats, the Beat Generation. Yeah. Uh, the term was invented by Kerouac, but although I always kind of thought it had something to do with music or beatniks, it was actually in reference to someone with no money, no prospects, just like 
beat down by the world. It's kind of like the characters in a lot of William S. Burroughs books. It's just like yeah. they're always just like, got any money for a drink? Got any money for a yeah. drink? Hey, you want to go get misery. a drink? Just misery. But like fun. They always tend to fun, get the drinks. Fun misery though. <laughs> I think drinks were cheaper back then. Yeah. Now you can't buy people a drink. No. Ten bucks or something. Or if you buy me the first couple, you never know because I sometimes turn into Jay-Z and I'm like, hey, who wants a shot? Shot, shot, <laughs> shot, shot, shot. And then I'm like, wait. I work in the arts, but still, shot, shot, shot. Worry about it later, Kara. Yeah. This is tomorrow, Kara's problem. <laughs> and the next day, until the next day, and the, the next, next day, day, until day. Yeah. Um, the success of the book brought Jack instant fame, mm-hmm. and he was bombarded with publishers looking to publish all his older unpublished books. Interesting. And he still held out that first one, so. Wow. Um. And after about nine months, he just, like, didn't even feel safe leaving the house. He was a celebrity. And he, one night he was beaten up really badly, like, on a street in New York after he was, like, out hanging out with his friends. But they knew who he was. Whoa. And they did not like him. Whoa. Also, Neil Cassidy, who Dean, the character of Dean, was based on, was set up by the cops and then arrested for selling weed because <gasps> they knew who he was and how easy it would be to get him. It's classic Rolling Stones situation. Yeah. It's fucked up. Bastards. It's fuck the police. Probably in response to all the fame craziness, he got back into Buddhism <laughs> and, of course, began writing a book about it um, called The Dharma Bums, which I really like. Mm. He wrote it in a very similar way to how he wrote On the Road, Unfortunately, though, Buddhists who Jack really admired and respected did not love the book and Jack took it really badly. Oh. Um, He said that, like, he met with people afterwards, like, promoting the book. He met with um, D.T. Suzuki, who was a prominent Buddhist scholar and writer. Uh, He said, quote, Even Suzuki was looking at me through slitted eyes as though I was a monstrous imposter. I don't think that he meant slitted eyes in a racist way. I think he was like... I just mouthed that to Amber like, wait. (laughs) I think he was more like slitted eyes like... I'm mad Giving him a dirty look. Why are you giving me evils? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. So sorry if anyone thought that... I just had a moment Jack was there. being racist. Yeah. He probably was, but I don't I didn't take it that way. Okay. Jack's good friend Gary Snyder, Snidey Man Snyder, mm-hmm. um, who had introduced Jack to Buddhism back in the day and was also the basis for one of the characters in the book. So he wanted Jack to come to California and meet up. And he explained to their other friend, Philip Whalen, in a letter, quote, I'd be ashamed to confront you and Gary now. I've become so decadent and drunk and I don't give a shit. I'm not a Buddhist anymore. In 1966, a TV show came out called Route 66 that was pretty much a blatant rip-off of On the Road, right down to the characters Buzz and Todd. They, like, resembled, like, athletic, dark-haired Kerouac, blonde, handsome Neil Cassidy. He planned. Fuck off. And it, like he was like, I'm going to sue. Yeah. 
but people talked him out of it, which is a real shame because he would have had a great case and it would have set him up. Yeah, and also that's, he created that, Mm. like, on a principal basis. Like, people have copied the road movie, the road idea over and over, but, you know, really. But that was more blatant. That was blatant. Yeah. And then he just sort of bummed around, appeared on a few TV shows, doing his drunk depresso thing. And then in 1964, his sister died, followed by his mother suffering a paralyzing stroke in 1966. That's very sad. And then in 1968, Neil Cassidy was found dead in Mexico. And then to just make sure he was all alone, he picked a really big fight with one of his well, who probably was his last remaining friend, Allen Ginsberg, basically about the counterculture movement of the 60s and blah, 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 blah. They were just just like a stupid fucking fight and I don't think they ever spoke again. That's sad. It's really sad. On the morning of October 20, 1969, Kerouac was working on a book about his father at at his home in Florida, which he shared with his third wife, Stella, and his invalid mother, and he felt a bit sick and he went to the bathroom where he began vomiting blood. He was taken to the hospital with a, with an esophageal hemorrhage and the doctors did surgery to try and stop the bleeding, but his liver was so badly damaged from years of drinking so they weren't able, like the blood couldn't clot to stop the right. bleeding. And he never woke up. And he died at the hospital at the very young age of 47. His official cause of death was internal hemorrhage due to cirrhosis of the liver, the result of long-time alcohol abuse. Mm. And a contributing factor could have been an untreated hernia he'd gotten in a bar fight a week before. (sighs) So that's really sad. Cara, darling, sweetie. Amber. What do you love about Jackie Kay? Okay, well, I was having a bit of a think about this. So first of all, for me, like the beat generation was just, it's just like fascinating Mm. to me, the whole movement and the time and there's just like a lot going on and I find it so interesting specifically that three like mega giant powerhouses that have lasted the, the, you know. All these years. The test of time, you've got. Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs, and Jack Kerouac, and they're all like bezzy mates from Columbia. That's right. Isn't that wild that they it. just like met one another? Yeah, I love it. I guess I, I should admit that um, revisiting these was kind of like nostalgic and fun because for me, both Kerouac and, spoiler, as we've already mentioned, William <laughs> S. Burroughs were like, they were pretty impactful in my youth, like maybe my, my late high school years. I started reading yeah, me too. their books and I think, and that was a great time to read them. If anyone yep. is under the age of 20, if anyone is in the teendom. <laughs> read them. And sorry for, for our foul mouths, but read <laughs> Jack Kerouac and uh, William S. Burroughs' books because I just, I found they really spoke to me at the time. It was great. As it, like, especially as a teenager, there was something about like this wild, uncurated adventures. Like the way, what does he say? Like there's, um, there was nowhere to go but everywhere. Yes. I love that. Yeah. And, um, 
I was kind of fascinated by, like, I was very interested by, like, the drugs and the sex. And I was, you know, I was also like, how on earth are these characters leading this lifestyle? Like... (laughs) I already had had like multiple jobs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah. So, but I I love that that uh, idea of adventuring. Also, like the Americana of it all. Yeah. By the way, I just want to paint a picture for the people at listening wherever you might be. Every time I do this bit, for whatever reason, I gesticulate like I am a fifth generation Italian, just like. (laughs) I just her like hands are all I over. use my hands all yeah. over the place, and I. She's feeling her words like, with her hands. I'm feeling myself. I'm feeling like my it. feelings. Um, but yes, I love the Americana. Amber knows, and Amber has also done this. But I have gone on to kind of like quite quite lengthy um, American road trips. Like one from I went New York, Memphis, New Orleans. The other one I went from Los Angeles across to Texas with beautiful Lou, who I mention all the time. But, like, America is so frightening and fascinating to me. Yeah, me too. It's really scary at times and it's just, like, it's just, like, such a unique place. Yeah. And when reading a book like On the Road specifically, like it's like reading about that kind of road trip and how it's sort of like this ingrained part of their culture. Like Gloria Steinem, she, um, what was her book? I feel like it's like On the Road. I feel like. But I don't know. That's what I was just about to say. (laughs) It is definitely something about a fucking road. It's Gloria Steinem, My Life on the Road. So it does have on the road in it. So I love that book as well. And it's just like this whole kind of like these these beautiful narratives and beautiful descriptions of these wild places that you travel through and such like this vast and like really diverse in landscape and culture kind of place. And I find that fucking really interesting. I really like that the characters on um, in on the road are based on his like real mates. There's something yeah. really nice about that that I like. When I was I studied creative writing at uni, and all my writing was like that. I didn't really write many actual fictiony made up things. I would just change people's names and tell stories about who. What, what fucking person said write what you know? Like every person. So. Yeah, duh. <laughs> Hmm? Yeah. Yeah, duh. so, I mean, it makes sense, right? But I guess the fact that his friends are Alan Ginsberg and, like, yeah, and William S. Burroughs, it's, like, more interesting. it's just really, it's really funny because you can, like, kind of, when you know a bit about them, you're like, hang on a second, I know who that is, yeah. sort of, and I love that. Look, I've dated a lot of Dean Moriarty's in my time. <laughs> <laughs> and... It's exciting, but also it's not that exciting. Exciting uh, at the end, it's, it's not. really exciting for Dean, but <laughs> it's exciting for a moment, and then you're just feeling like you're kind of you're choking on like selfish ego air. Yeah, and that's the worst kind of pollution, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you need some oxygen. I guess like the last thing that I like about Jack Kerouac. Let's keep it consistent. He's a fucking hottie. He is so hot. He's hot. He is so fine. <laughs> I think he's a babe. He's got a beautiful all-American man face. He's he's the classical American man spunk hunk. And he's tall and spunk broad. hunk. 
Um, I just want to say as well, because as Kara said before, that we sort of both love these writers, that I also love Kerouac. And when I went on my American trip, we went to San Francisco first Mm. and, like, I wanted to go there because a good friend of mine, Belle, lives there, but... I actually really wanted to go because I wanted to go to all those places where they sort of write a fair bit about that. And I just loved it. And I went to City Lights Bookstore. I bought fucking books on my first stop. I love that. I bought so many books that you couldn't get in print in Australia that I love and I will never get rid of them. Yeah. Um. And it was just fabulous. I'm probably going to post one of my really funny pictures of me in San Francisco. Please. With this story because it's funny. I think you should. You're welcome. I'll post um, a picture of Lou and I somewhere that is also in the book. Maybe New York. On the road. Don't go to New York. Great, they're in New York. We didn't go to Denver, but, you know, (laughs) gone to some of the other places. (laughs) Actually, we were in Colorado, maybe. <laughs> I was at Denver, Colorado Airport. Oh, yeah. On the way to I New went York. to the Four Corners, which is meant to be very spooky. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, there's a lot of legends. Don't read up about it because if you know about it, they'll find you. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to do some bad stuff. Hopefully there's not too much crossover with what you're about to say, Cara. I don't think so. I think we'll be fine. Um, so my first topic, as always, misogyny. Mm-hmm. So generally... Hey, I, hello, I, darkness, <laughs> my old friend. <laughs> I, <laughs> we're good friends. We know each other so well. Ah, uh, yeah, well acquainted. Um, I think people know that the Beats are regarded as pretty misogynist now mm-hmm. um, and that's really easy to see by the way that women are described in On the Road. And this is a fun little thing for you guys. I'm using, I'm quoting here. Dean's a dick. But I don't want to say quote every time, okay? (coughs) Leanne is a fetching hunk, a honey-coloured creature. There is a beautiful blonde called Babe, a tennis-playing, surf-riding doll of the West. Then there's Terry, the cutest little Mexican girl. Her breasts stuck out straight and true. Her little flanks looked delicious. And her hair was long and lustrous black. And her eyes were great big blue things with timidities inside. Mary Lou is a beautiful little chick, a pretty blonde. But outside of being a sweet little girl, she was awful dumb and capable of doing terrible things. When you read it all together like that, when and it's spread like, out. And there's even a bit in it when they go, or they say, quote, we decided the thing to do was have Mary Lou make breakfast and sweep the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Is that quite early in the book because I started rereading it? At another point in the book what they the called fuck? Mary Lou a dumb little box. Does that mean box the way we would say it, like a vag? I think so, yes. That's cute. She's a dumb vagina. <laughs> Basically, Dean and Sal sleep with her until she gets pregnant and then they're sick of her. It's pretty shitty and quite frankly makes me feel a little bit sick. They also do reference her being Dean's 16-year-old bride. 
ew. Mm. None of these women, who were based on real people, remember, are considered equal, not even really part of the group. No. They're all outside. They're the wives. They're receptacles of cum. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) But interestingly, a few of these women were also writers and published ones at that. But they never really got the recognition, nor did they really even see themselves as beat writers, aside from the fact that they were married to or partnered up with beats. Um, Carolyn Cassidy, Edie Parker and Hetty Jones wrote more about, like, looking in from the outside. And they they wrote about their men, not their own lives, Mm. which is really sad, I think. Yeah. And I think in a way they probably saw themselves more as muses than participants. It sucks. I guess it was the time as well mm-hmm. and yeah, probably that they publishers only wanted to publish stuff about men. So if it happened to be... There was no Bechdel test. There was none. Mm-mm. I don't know if there actually is one for books now, but oh. we should make one. Definitely. It would be hard, take a really long time. I also think that almost certainly these women were subjected to the same like creative stunting that we've seen from other artists' marriages like fucking Jackson, Psychopath, Pollock and... Time and time again. Um, In Big Sur, which Kararak wrote much later when he was an older successful writer struggling with alcohol... That book is about an older, successful writer and his struggles with alcohol. (laughs) Uh, The character, slash Jack, uh, starts sleeping with Neil Cassidy's mistress and then really cruelly introduces her to Neil's wife, like in a mean way. He's like... And then he ends up dumping her and she's stuck alone with a small child. And I think when you read... On the road, it's all sort of fun and games, ha, ha, ha. And then Big Sur is super depressing and a great example of why men need to grow the fuck up and stop being womanizing fuckwits. And I just want to say, though, I think that Kerouac and other writers like Hemingway get a really bad rap for being misogynist, but Mm. I think these writers defo have their place. I think, sure, read and enjoy books by white male authors, but just make sure you're not only reading books by white male authors, okay? That's my advice to you. Okay. But wait, I want to actually ask you one thing. What do you think about Ted Hughes? Does he fall into that category of, like, people you should excuse or...? Maybe. Or like, oh, because I'm just like, fuck off, ta-ta, ta-ta, Ted. I mean, maybe. I'm not saying excuse it. I'm saying read it. Yeah. Or maybe just, yeah. It, it's very- and, and also that I I wouldn't, you know, we, would, we joke around on it. I think we joke around about like if you see Sartre on yeah. a bookshelf, run for the hills. But I, I'm kidding. Yeah. But I like, have it on my bookshelf. Yeah. Amber has it on hers. But what I mean is if Alice that's, has it on but, hers. <laughs> yes. If that's all they're reading, that's a problem. Mm. That's the problem. If it's all white male authors. That's the issue. That is the issue. <laughs> Moving on. Another thing that I want to tell you about is Jack's only child, Jan. 
His second wife, Joan, was like seven months pregnant with Jan when her and Jack split up. Jack flat out refused that Jan was his child, refused. And Jan said of her childhood, quote, I never had any real education. My mother moved us around a lot. We were on welfare. We didn't have any money. I was six and I stole from the church poor box. I thought it was for us because we needed it. I never went to college. And Jack went to court to deny paternity. Like he didn't... He went to Maury Povich to deny paternity. He just didn't want to pay child support. Such a cunt. What a cunt. But, you know, just because you deny something... Like fucking Pablo. Yeah, it doesn't make it real, fuckhead. Luckily... Uh, when Jan was nine, a blood test was done and it found that she was Jack's daughter. What a shithead. The paternity test you're in, you're the father. (laughs) (laughs) What a dick. Such a dick. Also, like, I can't imagine how that must feel also being the child of that person denying their connection to you. That must be... I cannot imagine how fucking devastating that would make you feel. Gets worse. Oh, cool. Chill uh, <laughs> She said of her father, quote, I only saw my father twice, when I was a little girl and when I was 15. My boyfriend and I popped in on him in Lowell. He said I could use his name if I ever publish anything. Thanks, fuckface. We had to leave because his mother got upset. I was pregnant. I lost the baby in Mexico. I've had five miscarriages since. Which is so sad. God. She grew up to be a writer um, and had several books published, but any reviews that I found on her books are basically saying that she's a good writer, but she was learning. She wasn't quite there yet. And she needed more guidance and education and it's such a shame. I think she was also an alcoholic and a heroin addict, um, a sex sad. worker for a period of time. In 1994, a Jack Kerouac biographer encouraged Jan to sue the relatives of Stella, who was Jack's last wife, proposing that the will that Jack's mother Gabrielle had was a forgery. So when so in the will she left like he'd left everything to Gabrielle, his mum. Yeah, and then when Gabrielle died, had left all of Jack's property to Stella. Uh, but yeah, so Jan saying it was a forgery, mm-hmm. and she wanted to gain the legal right to her father's original works, his property including those parchment scrolls of On the Road, which would be amazing. And Jan argued that if the will was a fake and Gabrielle died without a will, that the estate would have gone to Jan and her cousin, Paul Blake, who was Caroline's son. Mm -hmm. Um, She also wanted his remains moved from Lowell to New Hampshire to the Kerouac family plot. The court found that the will was a forgery. Wow. So Stella Fuck you, Gabs. It, but that she still had no legal rights to his assets, which is so sad and shit. And then Jan died two years later at the age of 44 after surgery to remove her spleen. So she was three years younger than her dad. Mm-hmm. 
She had a really sad life and she lived That's in poverty for most so of it. So sad. I That's really Jack. fucked. It's fucking awful. Isn't it wild, like, when people go into the same... I mean, I was going to become an accountant and take after my father, <laughs> funnily enough. But, I mean, if you if your parent was in the public eye and in the, like, you know, sort of like the realm of media and publicity yeah, well, and then you took a, you decided to take that on, I mean... He was probably, like, the mythology of her father would have been... Yeah, but it's very, it's super common, you know, it's really common. And I'm just trying to think of like a time where it's really gone well. (laughs) Yeah. And I I actually can't right Um, now. Goldie Hawn and Kate Hudson, they both do okay. That's true. That's good. Um, What? What's that girl from? There's that girl from. The Sex Shades of Grey movie. Ah, Dakota Johnson. Is that her name? Yes, yes. And Melanie... Melanie Griffith is her mother. Right. And then, but that's, that's, that is also, that is a Hollywood dynasty because then there's, um, her mum was Tippi Hedren. So it's like this Hollywood dynasty kind of thing. So I guess like maybe that's slightly different. Also, have you seen the, um, architecture? Architectural Digest of um, Dakota. Yes, I love her house. So amazing. Please continue. Okay, well, that's it for that stuff. But I have one last fun story. Yay. (laughs) And that is about the murder, my favourite topic. Oh. The murder of David Kammerer. I know it's a tricky one, eh? Yes, Kammerer. I don't know. Camaro. I think Getting I'll just say old it Camaro all the time. Um, okay, so I spoke earlier about Lucian Carr, or I mentioned his name, who was a fellow beat writer and a very good buddy of Jack's. What was his character name in On the Road? Damien, which is kind of fitting to this story. Go yes. on. Lucian grew up in St. Louis, and when he was 12, he met an older man named David Camarera. <laughs> <laughs> it's just camera, camera, camera. <laughs> it just looks like a lot of M's and a lot of ERs. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy with it. Um, David Camera. Uh, he was a English teacher and a PE instructor, which is a weird combo. Um, at the University of Washington in St. Louis, which is also confusing. <laughs> I also must mention that Cameron was a childhood friend of William Burroughs mm. and Burroughs said that Cameron, quote, was always very funny, the veritable life of the party and completely without any middle class morality. So definitely someone who Burroughs would love. So Cameron was leading Lucian's Boy Scout troop, and he became obsessed with Lucian, obsessed in a very scary, bad, predatory way. And in the following five years, Camera followed Lucian from school to school. He would show up everywhere he went. He stalked him. Yeah. There was and is speculation about whether Lucian was into all the attention, which, in my opinion, is fucking insane. He was being stalked by this man since he was a child. Don't do that. And Lucian was and Lucian called this hounding of him 
sexually with a predatory persistence. Right. Weirdly, although probably because they run in the same circles, um, they did hang out sometimes. He was around. Yeah. Lucian insisted that they had never had sex and Burroughs agreed or at least believed him on that one, Mm -hmm. backed him up. Uh, Lucian attempted suicide because of the stalking and after some time in a psych ward, his mother moved him to New York City to be into a new place, hoping to protect him from camera, but of course that didn't work. He quit his job at a university in Chicago and moved to New York. Stage five clinger. I said it once, I'll say it again. Yeah. What is he saying, Wainton? Get the net. <laughs> I don't own a gun, let alone many guns that necessitate a gun rack. It's a gun rack. <laughs> is that Stacy? Yeah, who is all in Lara Flynn Boyle. Donna from Twin Peaks, yeah. <laughs> we always have to say Twin Peaks in every episode. Um... <laughs> Lucian went to Columbia University and that's where he met Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. Lush then made friends with Edie Parker and she introduced him to Jack. Mm-hmm. Then Lucian introduced everyone to Burroughs. Yoo-hoo, that's me. So Lucian Carr was sort of the centre of the group and Ginsberg once called him or said of him, Lou is the glue, <laughs> which is adorable. Also... Come on, you're a writer. You can do better than that. I like it. <laughs> Camera lurked on the edges of the group for about 10 months. Sometimes Lou avoided him. Sometimes he, they let him hang out. The other members of the group were deeply uncomfortable with Camera. Like one time, William Burroughs caught him trying to hang Jack Kerouac's cat. Like he was fucking losing it. Done. Completely. You can't do that. He also wasn't working in his usual job. He couldn't get work as a at any schools. He was working as a janitor's assistant ah. in his building in exchange for rent. He was like, kook, coo. He couldn't get a job anywhere. He, he probably like, uh, he's, it sounds like he's um, uh, exhausted his allocation. Like he's moved around so much. That, yeah. You must have got a reputation around. Totally. To that. Then in July of 1944, Jack and Lucian started talking about how they might take a merchant marine boat to Paris. Mm -hmm. And their plan was to walk across France and like stay in these like characters that they created. Yeah. Um, And Jack was this fancy man and Lou was his deaf mute friend. (laughs) Yeah, because he couldn't speak any French, right? Yeah. Which I think just seems so like something I would love to do. When I, I, I love read, making up a character and staying in it for hours. Lou pretends sometimes that she's famous in stores. <laughs> like she'll put sunglasses on and be like, oh, no, no. And be like really shy and put her head down like it's like a game. <laughs> and I just, I can't get enough of it. It's actually really fun. It's so good. Um, anyway, camera freaked the fuck out thinking he would lose Lucian and not be able to get to him anymore. Mm. And in August, camera snuck into Lucian's bedroom and watched him sleep. Yeah. For God knows how long he was caught by a guard when he left via a fire escape. Then on the 13th of August, so the next month, Lucian and Jack were headed to the docks to ship out on one of these boats. 
but they were a couple of scallywags and at the last minute they got kicked off the boat because they were just silly young men, probably drunk, who fucking knows, Mm. which is a real bummer anyway. So they went to their favourite bar and just got pissed. Then Jack left the bar and he bumped into camera. Camera, of course, said, where's Lucian? And Jack fucking told him. Yeah. She's so annoying and weird. I don't think he fully comprehended what, I don't know. Well, in, okay, in the book about it, he doesn't, Jack is actually quite um, uh, unsympathetic towards what is going on or maybe just like not willing to acknowledge or doesn't quite comprehend how bad it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know, that was a, that's a fictional book. (laughs) Yeah, it's not. It's not really. It's based off real things. So anyway, he found Lucian at the bar and then they start going for a walk together to Riverside Park. Lucian later said that they were just having a rest and that Camera made yet another sexual advance and that when Lucian rejected it, Camera assaulted him physically. Camera was a lot bigger than mm. Lush, and he had total control over that fight. Like, he was enormous compared to Lucian. So he panicked and he stabbed Camera using the Boy Scout knife from his childhood, which, bitch, is so fucking poetic and I love it. Mm. He then weighted the body, like, with rocks and dumped it in the Hudson River. Yeah. Which is, like, right. Along the park. And then he went straight to see William, told him what happened and gave him Camera's bloody packet of cigs, Mm. which Burroughs promptly flushed down the toilet and said, turn yourself in, mate. Yeah. Which is good sage advice. But Lou wasn't ready to give himself up just yet. He didn't like that idea. So he went and he saw his buddy Jack, who he thought, you know, is far less upstanding. Not that Burroughs is particularly upstanding. I don't know. He's a drug-addled fool. Um, He's a bit older. Yeah, 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 he is. So anyway, Jack helped him get rid of the knife. They buried Camera's glasses. Mm -hmm. And then they went to a bar, drank a whole lot of booze, and then they went to MoMA and just looked at the paintings. I know, I think it's so funny. It's like a perfect New York day. (laughs) Hide the weapon, go see the Monet. (laughs) Drunken gallery walking, love it. The best. Uh, He did. Great class Oldenburg in there. Uh, He did eventually turn himself in after he saw his mother later that day. The cops hadn't found the body yet at all. Um, And I think they were sort of, they didn't really believe him at first. Yeah. Until later he said, please go and get the body. This is where I dumped it. And they found it. Uh, And then it was pretty clear what had happened to him. Yeah. Jack and William were brought in and arrested as material witnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, William's father posted his bail. Um, Jack's dad, however, wasn't so keen to pay the $100 bond. So Edie Parker, his then girlfriend, asked her parents to pay it and they were like, sure, but you and Jack have to get married first. And then with detectives as Witnesses, they got married in the municipal building. No. Romance. Uh, I like 80. Yeah, it's a shame. Uh, Lucian ended up being charged with secondary moida. (laughs) Moida. And he pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter. 
And his mother backed up his story about Camera being a predatory stalker, but it was also a bit of a gay panic defence. 100%. Which back then they called an honour slaying, which is gross. Yep, that's really fucked. Um, he was sentenced to a term of 1 to 20 years, which is pretty fucking broad. It's vague. Uh, he ended up serving two years before being released. And I don't know why I was so desperate to tell that story, but it's fascinating. It's a crossover as well. I read somewhere that the detectives basically needed Lucian to prove that he was straight in order to have his story to be taken seriously. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's very, it's a very interesting and, and frankly, like as disgusting it is as it is at that point in time. It's quite a clever defense yeah. to take. Well, it's also perfect that Jack like literally got married to a woman while still in custody. Yeah. Because that proved he was straight. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What a fucking time. I think Jack was actually very confused about his sexuality. Okay. Oh. And he always seemed to allude to a lot of homosexual stuff in his books, but always in this very homophobic slash homoerotic way. He's definitely like the most macho of the three. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. I reckon I could do a whole, we could do a whole fucking podcast episode just about that story and the gay, the gay politics of yeah, yeah, yeah. the 50s. Anyway, 40s. And the dynamic 30s, between those whatever. three men as well. Yeah, it's very interesting. Fascinating. Um, but I won't go on forever. That's the end. Amber, that was absolutely delightful. Fascinating, interesting. I was enthralled. I was engaged. Yay! Five-star review. Thank you. So sweet. All right, it's time for a sig. I'm sorry, All right. I am quite excited. It's my time to shine. I just pulled up my sleeves because I'm serious. <laughs> now, do you want to hear about a man who was exercised? Yes. A man who spent a year without bathing? Yes. A man who cut the end of his pinky finger off to give to his boyfriend to illustrate his deep emotional pain? That is fucking great and scary, yes. Sounds like a good story to hear? Yes. Well, you're in a great deal of luck, my friend, and you should probably buy a lottery ticket. Yay! We're talking one William Seward Burroughs. Seward? S-E-W-A-R-D. Seward? Yeah. Ooh. Seward. Uh, anyway, Will, sorry, I should say William Seward Burroughs the second. Ooh, fancy. You know what that means. Fancy. Money! Yeah. So, his grandfather and namesake had a job as a clerk in a bank, but he was like, fucking hell, adding all this shit up is tiring. Yeah. And he started working on making the process a little less laborious. And then he got sick and his doctor said, like, Will, mate, you've got to move to a warmer climate. Yeah. And I feel like all doctors in the 1800s were like, look, I'm going to be straight here. Research and science don't exist. I'm flying by the seat of my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Just go get some sun. Scram, get out of here. Go. Everyone's miserable when it's cold. That was pretty much it. Uh, Stop being cold. So he moved to St. Louis in Missouri, which frankly I don't think is 
that much warmer. It's pretty cold. No. Winter temps average at minus two. So <laughs> that's like cold. It's cold. So eventually, William Senior had the biggest adding machine company in the whole wide world. Oh, but we should get back to the point, which is William S. Burroughs, Junior. The second. The second. So he was born 5th of February, 1914, mm. and he had one brother, and they grew up in the not-too-hot, not-too-cold St. Louis <laughs> in a lovely home, which was up for sale in 2014. I had a little look. It was valued or it was going to go for $587,900 American dollars. It's got a lot of dark wooden features. Ooh. I'm into it. Anyway, so he attended. Bargain. Hmm? bargain. Absolute bargain. I know. And also it was being sold. That was like part of the shtick. Of this course. was William S. Burroughs' house. I hope that the people who bought it appreciated that, yeah. yeah. So he attended two schools. One, funnily enough, was called John Burroughs School. No relation. Oh, weird. John Ham also went there. Oh, love, mm. love the ham. Love him. William had his first published essay while attending this school, which is pretty impressive. When he was away. Yeah, when he was a little little youngster. Um, then he was sent to Los Alamos Ranch School in New Mexico. Ooh, much warmer. F- fucking hated it though. Oh. And yes, it was kind of a school for like rich kids and it, it just wasn't his jam. Oh. It was at this point that William started to acknowledge his sexuality and his attraction to men. And he kept diaries throughout this time, but he destroyed them Aww. because he felt very ashamed of some Aww. of the salacious content. That's really sad. It is sad. It'd be worth a billion bucks. So then he finished high school back in Missouri and headed off to Harvard University, wow. the Ivy League. Mm. And he did an arts degree. And, and then he started doing some work as like a reporter for a St. Louis-based newspaper, but he didn't really like it at all. And then at this time he sought the assistance of a sex worker to lose his virginity and he also started travelling back and forth from the big smoke, New York City, and uh, he was dipping his toe into kind of like the very underground gay scene yes, we, in the city. When you said lose his virginity, do you mean a, a With male, a, woman. a f- female sex worker? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so William graduated in 1936 and he went over to Europe for the obligatory post-graduation Kentucky tour. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, I think he was predominantly in Vienna and he met Ilse Klapper and the two got married in Croatia. And this was a V... That's a woman, Ilse, but um, the this was a visa marriage essentially right. to get... He'll say into America because of the wretched fucking Nazis. Yeah, of course. And they ended up divorcing sometime later, but they stayed mates. Okay. So back in America, William had like a bunch of different jobs, including being an exterminator. Yes, of course he did. Yeah. And then um, this is when he cut off his left, left pinky in um, 1939. And I said that earlier, it was his boyfriend, but it could just be a man he was quite obsessed with. Okay. Anyways, you know. You never know. It resulted in now having nine fingies and being less too whole phalanges. So (laughs) (laughs) he wrote a story about it called The Finger, actually. I like it. 
Uh, then William got, funnily enough, a little parallel here, he got quite nationalistic. Um, it was kind of soon after Pearl Harbor was bombed and he enlisted. Yes. But then he was going to be in the first, inf- he was going to be a first infantry officer and he was going to be right in the thick of it and he immediately <laughs> regretted his decision. So his mum came to the rescue and was like, look, my son is crazy. You should have noticed this. <laughs> anyway, he's like, definitely should not be in the army. And they were like, she, she seems legit. We'll discharge him. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah, so kind like, of... Mummy. Uh, yeah, I feel he had a very close relationship with his ma. I never, I never knew this fact, but it makes a lot of sense because there are quite a lot of like military parallel plot lines in his books, yeah, which right. I've noticed. Anyway, then he goes to Chicago for a bit. Actually, sorry, that's when he be- he became an exterminator in Chicago. Okay. Apologies. Then he headed to New York City with some mates and there was a rather sticky incident which Amber covered with uh, Lucian Carr. Yes. So I'll leave it at that. We've already done that. In 1944, he meets one Joan Volmer. Joan. So, yeah. Joan. So Jack Kerouac, his first wife, Edie Parker, Joan and William are all living in an apartment together. And it seems like it wasn't like a great situation. (laughs) (laughs) William started taking morphine, which led to heroin, and Joan was taking amphetamines at the same time, which is a fucking hectic combo in a relationship. Um, And Jack's just like drunk all the time. Yeah, exactly. So he started taking morphine in his teens because he was in this horrific accident, like a chemical explosion. Got a lot of splinters in his hands. They were like remove them. But back to Joan. She was already married. Her husband was away in the war and she had a daughter already, Julie. It doesn't sound like a very stable home for a child. Poor Julie. I know. But when Joan's husband returned to America, he was like, what the fuck is going on here? (laughs) And then he divorced her. Oh, fair enough. And then William was arrested for forging a prescription. And then Joan went into a temper. I'm going through it because it's a long life. Then Joan went into a temporary psychosis. She was having auditory hallucinations, which I have had once before. It just... It seems very fucked up. Mine was for a different reason. But anyway. (laughs) It would be very scary. I thought a bush was talking to me. So Joan was then admitted to Bellevue Hospital and then the Burroughs family, Richie McRitrich, they came to the rescue and Joan soon became William's common-law wife. Right. Whirlwind. Romance. Yep. Joan was aware of, like, of William's sexual preferences. Like, she knew what was going on by by many accounts. And they had a very interesting relish, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, in 1947, Joan had Lil William Jr. or William III or Billy, if you prefer. Let's call him Billy. Billy! Uh, so the couple's drug use was getting... Worse, and they eventually moved to Texas after giving New Orleans a try. That was obviously never going to fucking work. Nope. And that's the bit that's in 
on the road. Yeah. Like, as guys, who are you kidding? The Big Easy? It's no place for you. It's too much for you. New Orleans was wild when I went there. I paid to get my fortune told. I'm relatively certain it was a woman who was sleeping rough with a card table. Good for her. Yeah. It wasn't great fortune. And it just got really, what's the street? I can't remember. Bourbon Street. Bourbon Street. We walked down Bourbon Street and it was very late and I was just like, I want to leave. Like it was rough. Like there yeah, was, it was just. scary. It was a bit scary, frankly. Anyway. Like everything I found about America, I was like, oh, this is going to be really great. Oh, no, it's just really scary. Yeah. It was a bit like that. people and mentally ill people and lots of people without getting any treatment everywhere just being kind of scary. This just seemed like really raucous young men who were drunk and looking for to like, you know, see nude women. Yeah, right. Anyway, Big William, our main subject, hightailed it to Mexico, south of the border. Cool. To avoid the consequences of his little creative prescription work. <laughs> Uh, soon Joni and the kids went to join him and it was a nutter happy time. I don't think William could get heroin, but he still took like other things to like soothe himself and it was just a, it was a bad time. But we'll, I'll get into it a bit later. Sure. Sadly, Joan died September 6, 1951. Oh. Anyway. End of story. <laughs> this was really the beginning of William's like writing career. It was the death of his wife that, funnily enough, like really kickstarted oh shit into gear. Lucky High gear. Him. Absolutely. Um, he had pretty much finished the book Junkie when Joan died, and this was published under the pseudonym William Lee, which was his mother's maiden name. Old Bill Lee. Yeah, exactly. That's what he's in the book, right? Yeah, in yeah, on yeah, the road. Yeah. I think he was trying to, like, provide for his family writing this book, which is pretty ironic because he wrote a book about drug addiction, <laughs> which was pretty much biographical. What a good dad. Uh, I read this book when I was in high school, like I mentioned before, Same. and I found it very confronting. It scared me. It's real. It's just, it's really raw and it's really piercing and sometimes his writing just kind of, it just hits you in the fucking face. Yeah. I also read his book Queer while researching this and there's one part where I just wanted to kind of give an example of this like his way of writing which is just like if you're reading it on a bus or something you're like ooh, ooh, or like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so there's one part of the book that describes some like men discussing oil mines and it says, now if the world turns dry, the oil man says, well, that's the way it goes. Some holes got lubrication and some are as dry as a horse cunt on a Sunday morning. Oh, God. Oof. <laughs> I read it, like, and I was like, ah! <laughs> uh, that's just the way it writes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, while we're on Queer, uh, the book, William later really hated talking about it. Like, he basically refused to discuss it. He thought it was really amateur and he compared it to going through like your uh, old high school stuff. Yeah, okay. So Queer was written after Junkie, but it wasn't published until, until 1985. And like you said, he had, quite, like, he had quite a few of his works that were written but weren't published until a long time later. Actually, quite a few of them I think were published still within his lifetime though. Yeah. Including a little collab with one... 
Jack Kerouac. Yes, I have that book. I read it for this. It's called And and the Hippos Were Boiled in Their Tanks. That's it. And that was written in 1945 and not published until 2008. And it's about the murder. It is. It's like a semi-account of the whole Lucian Carr debacle. I bought it in San Francisco. At City Lights Bookstore. Love it. Anyway, so William headed uh, to stay with his parents. He tried to bone Allen Ginsberg, who wasn't into it. Although I do think, and like you kind of Ooh. touched on, I think William, Jack and Allen all had sexy fun times together. Yeah. For sure. Anyways, he headed to Rome. He got bored. Then he went to Morocco And that's where he settles into a life of debauchery. Yeah, right. And also where he wrote probably, I would say, one of his most favourite, famous works. The Naked Lunch. Ding, ding, ding. I love that book. It was published in 1959. Do you? I read that a long time ago too. I didn't reread it this time. He utilised this kind of like way of writing which was created by Brian Gesson although it's often attributed to Burroughs. I think he kind of appropriated it and made it famous, but they also collaborated and they were like good mates, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. But basically you cut up text and books and you rearrange the words and it could be like one word or a few words and you form new sentences out of them. Uh, it has been used by loads of talented folks, especially in music, like splicing sounds and like mushing them together. Yeah. One David Bowie was really into it. Kurt Cobain was a big fan of Burroughs. I was going to say, he called the method, oh, sorry, no, William, sorry, David Bowie called the method Western Tarot. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if you want to hear about David, season one, episode six might be a fun time for you. Mm-hmm. Here's a fun fact Naked Lunch preempted AIDS, the crack epidemic, and lipo. Oh. Mm. Good stuff, Wills. That's interesting. Well done. <laughs> and it caused a lot of controversy and was deemed obscene. Yes. Like you mentioned, it was the last book to be banned and was in, I, I imagine that means in the United States, it was the last book to be banned and it was a milestone in like changes and shifts in legislation and sticks being removed from the establishment's asses. Yay. Maybe not removed but like slightly shifted yeah. at most. Anyway, William first came across the cut-up technique, which was what I was talking about, in the Beat Hotel in Paris. That was its nickname. I can't actually remember what the real name of the hotel is, but it still exists. It was a super gross hotel in the Latin Quarter. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems like, it really seems like the Chelsea Hotel of Paris. Yeah, I like it. Like the equivalent. Um, And he was in Paris because when he was in Morocco, he started feeling a bit unsafe, so he went there. And now we get to yet another instance of William's Teflon tendencies towards the law. Yay. So he got involved with a shady character named Paul Lund. Paul got in trouble with the law and then he grasped on Burroughs, who was all mixed up in, like, the importation of narcotics. Oh. But then Maurice Giridias, if you will, uh, he founded Olympia Press and he also published Naked Lunch and then... He was like, nah, man, he's a famous writer and he's so great. And so he got a suspended sentence. Oh, 
That's good. He got a different one too. I'm going to talk about that in a bit. Just hold tight. But it's really like Burroughs just gets out of fucking everything. And well, it's, it's just ridiculous. another example of a famous guy. Who's white with money. Not paying consequences. Just like Robert Downey Jr. all over again. Shall we pardon him so he can vote again? Yes. <gasps> all right. William was obsessed with magic and the occult. Loved it. Me too. Loved that shit. He was actually, he was really infatuated by that whole thing from yeah. a really young age. He's a little witchy boy. He is a witchy boy. And I think he had like, it was like, honestly, I can't quite remember. It was visions of like a deer or like mm. a steed or some shit like that. But anyways, Ooh. he was really into it during the Beat Hotel. And also, your boy, Jimmy Page, had some great chats with William. Of he course. was also mega into the occult. He lived in Alistair Crowley's old house. Yeah. And you'd know that if you listen to season two, episode eight, and maybe you should. <laughs> You're so good. Like, review, subscribe. Uh, <laughs> next, he moved to London in 1960. He's a man of the world, darling. I like it. Yeah, He's got I do too. Cool style. Um, he stayed and he worked there for six years and the catalyst of that move, he was like, I'm getting off the junk, I'm getting clean, done. I'm going to beat this addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Dare to be better or whatever that shit was. <laughs> anyway, but he did it with a, with a little help from his friend. Oh. Apomorphine. <laughs> anyway, uh, he eventually left London. He returned to America for family reasons. And he wrote for a couple of magazines like Playboy and Esquire and he wrote also The Last Words of Dutch Schultz in 1969, followed by The Wild Boys in 1971. Have you read that one? I've read The Wild Boys. Yeah, that's intense too. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. He also dabbled in Scientology for really? like a hot minute. Yeah, <laughs> which is really I cannot bizarre. imagine it's so why. weird. Eventually he was like, nah, you people are too rigid for me. And I'm like, yeah, duh. What? What are you thinking? He just likes the witchy stuff. Bananas. It's made up. Anyway. Uh, Come for us. Uh, Alan Ginsberg was a little bit, he was worried about his mate, so he hooked him up with a sweet gig. He hooked him up with a job teaching at the City College of New York. But he was such an asshole (laughs) about this. I think he stayed for like only one semester and he basically said that like the students were just talentless. Oh, God. Yeah, he was real mean. And I think he was generally just supremely self-centred and extremely narcissistic. Okay. I think you have to be if you want to be a weirdo and a writer. Maybe. He got involved with a bookseller named James Grauer Holtz and started touring, doing like book readings to earn a bit of coin, which is pretty lucrative in the end. Mm. Um, this is when I wanted to chat about Burroughs and music, a truly fascinating and beautiful relationship. Cool. So let's discuss just some of the terms that were coined from William's writing. Heavy metal. Really? That came from Soft Machine. Steely Dan, what a classic band. Do you remember where that was from? No. It's a dildo in Naked Lunch. Ah! There's other things too. But um, he was just super influential to like so many incredible artists. Like he's the literary daddy of rock and roll. Yeah. 
He was named the godfather of punk in the media. Uh, And I think I actually first kind of came to know who this man was because I love Patti Smith. Yeah. And I was like, who the fuck is this, like, old man with my Patti? Well, I found out about him because Kurt Cobain loved Uh him. Right. See? Similar journeys. Yeah. And I was like, he must be okay. He's hanging out with my Patti. And he is okay. And it's like my Bowie, your Kurt, no one's Paul McCartney. So many incredible <laughs> artists. They were all connected to William. And he also lived in um, one of the, I think the last place that he lived in New York was like this hovel that people nicknamed like the bunker, but it was really close to CBGB's. Cool. Which is like down in Alphabet City, I think, or close to there anyway, but it was like the mecca of punk. The Ramones lived there. The New York Dolls shot one of their album covers down there. Trash and Vaudeville, classic R.I.P. to the uh, owner, whose name escapes me, but was a legend. Have met. Had met. Sad. Um, Also, he had a lot of art kind of, like visual art dabblings nearing the end of his life. Most notably, he would just like get spray cans and then shoot them. In front of a canvas. Cool. He was meant to make a film adaptation of Junkie with Dennis Hopper, but they fought like mad. Mm. Fought like crazy dogs. That's a shame. And it didn't go ahead. It's too horrible anyway. I don't know if you want to see that on film. No, I wouldn't. I also think that maybe if they did do a film adaptation, like it would be, it would have to diverge so much from the original because the original is really raw. Anyway, he got back into heroin and he moved to Lawrence, Kansas. Oh, that's a funny place to I go. I know. Um, and this is where lots of musicians would, like, make their pilgrimage to meet him. Yeah. Uh, he was in Gus Van Sant's film Drugstore Cowboy. Yes, I forgot that. Yeah. I really want to watch that again. We should watch it again. Yeah. I think you have to hire it when I was looking. I don't mind. Let's do that together. Okay. He had a triple bypass surgery um, and the last time he was in like anything, you know, filmed or seen was U2's video for Last Night on Earth. Ew. Yeah, Bono. What did you do? How dare you? Then he died. (laughs) It was 1997. He had a heart attack and he left the earth the following day when he was 83 Years old. Fucking amazing. Fucking miraculous. How, how? Is the Keith Richards of the literary literary, world. The literary rebels. Yes. Like I said, like, I'm sorry I haven't covered all the details. He just lived a super long fucking life and we all know I am not famous for my editing, (laughs) but I tried my best here (laughs) and we've got a lot to do. So let's not delay any longer. Why do you love him, you big Burroughs lover? Well, as I said, I discovered him through Kurt Cobain. Kurt. As a teen. And I think that, like, me and all my friends were really obsessed with sort of weird... Counterculture shit. Yeah. We were also really into Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. We loved all that, like weird psychedelic kind of drug shit. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Do you ever see the movie of Naked Lunch? No, I don't think I did, no. We used to watch it and it was quite terrible um, but sort of fun to see all those cockroaches and shit. Can we watch that too? Yeah, I, w- I wonder what it's like now that you're not on acid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was just a time, like, he was one of the first real, like I said, literary rebels that I discovered that yeah. was like, whoa, shit. Because, bef- you know, I'd already read lots of good books that you should read when you're a young person mm-hmm. looking for Ella Brandy, for example. <laughs> Fucking classic. <laughs> The Catcher in the Rye, you know, that sort of stuff. But then when I read Naked Lunch, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Holy crap, this is scary and funny and beautifully written sort of in a, I mean, I was obsessed with Beck. So all that sort of stuff that doesn't really make sense but just feels right, Mm. I was very into it. All right. I don't know. That's all I've got to say on the subj. Okay. Well, I'm going to start doing the ripping. Thank you. William received an allowance from his parents every month until he was 50 years old. 50? I think I'm only adding this in here, honestly, because I'm fucking jealous. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not his fault that his parents are... I'm into it, but, you know. ...generously... Rich. Very weirdly, and I found this a bit bizarre. 50, though. Yeah. I know. He was quite conservative about certain things. He fucking hated abortion. Really? Yeah, why do you even care? Yeah, don't worry about it, mate. You don't have to get one. No. So when Big Willie was 37, he started having an affair with a young buck named Lewis who was 21. And the two of them headed to South America, leaving Joan and the two children behind in search of ayahuasca. Oh, right. Or Yahe. I'm pretty sure it's Yahe, but it's like Y-A-G-E, but I think it's pronounced Yahe. But essentially I think it's the same as ayahuasca. Okay. Um, and this is like pretty much what queer is about. Yeah. So Joan was stuck in Mexico an addict with two children to look after, she was not doing well. That's not cool, dude. She wasn't well at all. And the book, The Yahe Letters, was published and is comprised of William's correspondence with Allen Ginsberg during his second trip to South America in search of a sweet high. And he believed Ugh. that ayahuasca also would give him, like, telepathic abilities. Okay. But, hey... Well, it might make you think you have them. Maybe. Well, that's about it. Don't abandon your wife and your children. No. To spew your guts out, go on a trip. Not cool, William. Especially when she's not doing very well. She's not doing well. She, like, started losing her and she was horrible. Oh, it's horrible. So we know he had a son and I think he did really love his son. But also, like father, like son. So Mm. William S. Burroughs Jr., Billy, was also arrested for prescription fraud, and his dad put him straight into Lexington Narcotics Farm and Prison. Don't worry, they rebranded. That's a very unappealing name. (laughs) (laughs) But um, 
while his son was going through the legal proceedings and sentencing for this fraud, Big Daddy Will was also going through like serious withdrawals because he wasn't using. Okay. And I think, I feel like maybe that was a solidarity thing. I don't know. But Lil Billy was actually introduced to drugs by his father. So that's not cool. Yeah. And Billy. Sadly, died at the incredible young age of 33. 33. It's a baby. I like to say that. I wouldn't have said that when I was younger, but now I do. <laughs> yeah, well, like you hope you'll live further than. Yeah, it's just fucking sad. And like yeah. he was a writer as well, just like yeah. Jack Kerouac's daughter. Like he also was a writer and he had some success, but he just fell into that same trap. And then at 33, he was gone. It's awful. Um, Ooh, but what a life growing up with those two. Yeah. Fucking hell. Like he also said that when he visited his dad in Tangier in Morocco, like one of his father's friends molested him. Oh. And look, this is actually a slight spoiler alert, but whatever you probably know. William S. Burroughs killed his son's mother and then abandoned him, which is like a fuck. It's a shit mountain of shittiness, frankly. Yeah. The poor person. There's no way he was going to turn out fine. Well adjusted. Oh, how sad. It is sad. But let's go into something more exciting, which is William S. Burroughs made no secret of expressing his beliefs that women are a biological mistake. <laughs> Super cute. So cute. Thanks, doll. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Joan, his wife, was pretty but not striking looking. Um, Ease up, Will. You know, fucking oil painting yourself. So you're gay, so. I know. What the fuck would you know? But you're also like, he's not like, he's <sighs> no. not Cosmo's man of the year. He's, he's a like a gaunt. Gaunt, hollow he's so face. so gaunt. But sometimes he wasn't gaunt. And I saw some like younger photos where he wasn't, but I always imagine him as that gaunt old man with Patty yeah. Smith. Yeah, same. That's how he is always. God, mine is heavy this week, actually. Sorry. It's not, this isn't in any way like a bad thing that William did at all. But I wanted to just kind of mention it just to give, I don't know, like a bit more of a a whole picture. Uh William had a nanny when he was little and he just, like, he loved her. Her name was Mary. And... When he was four years old, he was forced to watch Mary and her girlfriend have sex. Uh, But Mary's girlfriend also had a boyfriend. What? And in his adult life, he uncovered a repressed memory while going through like a psychoanalysis. And he remembered his nanny forced him to perform oral sex on the boyfriend. Which is fucked. It's fucking horrible. Jesus. I know. Yoig. And he kind of like blamed his sexuality on that and it's yeah. it's all fucked up. Well, of course he would feel very conflicted about who he was. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. He Jesus. was a drug dealer for a bit. But who among us, you yeah, know? We've all who been among there. us? So Joan stopped the drugs. And I think William did too, but just for a hot minute. 
And then he was back on the drugs. And then there's this story. He was, like, heating up some junk over the stove, like had a little spoon or whatever, and then she, like, smacks it out of his hand because she's like, I'm fed up. And then he slapped her across the face twice. Twice? Twice. Uh, That's one story. Um, Why don't you just get your shit together, dude? As you can imagine... It seems as though they were very neglectful of their children. Like, I think they, like, kind of ran riot when they were living in Mexico City and just had, like, real matted hair and just, like, were not looked after. But also Joan was meant to be, like, super-duper clean, like, real clean freak. Yeah. But just, like, didn't look after her kids. But she would, like, sweep trees and shit. I mean. Yeah. He fucking loved guns. Loved Uh, them. Which leads me to my next tale. On September 6th, 1951. William S. Burroughs shot and killed his wife, Joan. Mm. And there are loads of different stories. There's lots of accounts and theories surrounding this horrible fatal accident or incident. Anyway. Oh. I actually did want to tell you something. When I was like just researching this, oddly enough, there was a woman named Joan Volmer, same spelling, who lived in a really small town in Victoria in Australia and she was murdered in 1993 because her husband, yeah, do you remember well, this? And a group like a group of people from the church were like exercising the demons yeah. out of Joan and they fucking horrifically murdered that poor yeah. woman. Yeah, I know. There's absolutely no relation, just an interesting fact of another ill-fated Joan Volmer. I also went to high school maybe or was friends with a guy back in the day his name was John Volmer. Oh. It's got nothing to do with I hope anything. he's okay. <laughs> Jesus. I think he seems fine. Okay, good. I, I think I stalked him one time on Facebook. Great. Like, because I saw his commented on a post. I pressed it. I was like, oh, yeah, good. He's, he's okay. Alive. He's, he's okay. all right. Just look out for the Volmers with the J first names <laughs> in your life, okay? Um, back to the story. Um, so everyone's getting boozed up at this bar. They're in Mexico City. Some people say it was like an apartment, but who cares regardless. William's talking about how he's like such an amazing shot. Like his marksmanship is out of sight. I'm the best at guns in I'm the so world. I'm so good. Guns, oh, guns. Bam, so bam, bam. Guns. Check out my guns, doing gun stuff. And then Joan makes fun of him and she's like, you're a fucking terrible shot. Like she say, it says, one of the stories is like he's saying how they're going to like move into the rural country and he's going to shoot the bull for the family. And she's like, we'll starve to death. Kind of thing. Well, yeah, he's a drug addict. Yeah. And he's probably not capable of... She's right. Well, yeah. Yeah, sadly. Uh, and then he asked Joan, he's like, stand up and we're going to do like our William Tell act. I didn't know who William Tell was. I do. Maybe you can shed more light on it. But uh, what I saw was he was an expert marksman and apparently... A Swiss folklore hero. <laughs> oh, I didn't know he was Swiss. I think he's Swiss. Yeah, right. I think he he did the like you put an apple in your mouth. Oh. And then he would shoot with an arrow. Ah yes. I know who you're talking about. Which seems dangerous. Like it could go through the arrow Yields. still. Yeah, there's a big margin for error. Anyway. There. Sorry. I asked you. Um <laughs> so. Then Burroughs, the, the Will, William Burroughs, not the Tell Burroughs, the <laughs> William, whatever. There's too many Williams in the story here. 
Burrows. So he tells Joan to put a shot glass on her head so he can show the fellas how good he is. And she's not into it. And also, I believe she was like pretty fucked up at no. this point. It's a fucking terrible idea. Oh, no. The fact that they're all out of their minds. Don't do it. With no ability to stand still, let alone stand upright. It's just oh. the terribleness of the idea is. Whew. I feel very nervous, even though I know what's going to happen. Yeah. So he shoots. Joan slumps to her side. She's got a great big hole in her temple. Oh, for fuck's sake. That's what happens. The hospital, police, and of course, Bill's lawyer was called. Joan was still alive. Miraculously, she was still alive. She was taken to the closest hospital and she had a blood transfusion. She had a hole in her fucking head. Yeah. Wow. She didn't make it. She was 28 oh, years Joan. old. William initially told the police the account that I've kind of told you about the game and the silliness and the, you know, dumb accident. But then his lawyer was like, ah, no, no. Didn't you, uh, didn't you put the, the gun on the table and then it accidentally fired? Oh, no. Wink, wink. And then, <laughs> so then we were. Wasn't it even more of an accident? Yeah. Yeah. He went to jail for two weeks before getting out on bail and then he only got a two-year suspended sentence and skipped town. Whoa. He's a slippery little fella. So he slipped town and just like got away with it. Pretty much, yeah. Got away with slipping town. Yep. But he got a two-year suspended (sighs) sentence anyway. that's all he got. Yeah, I get that. That's terrible. But also he can't even just... Stick around for that, <laughs> just like face up to that. No, he just tiny left his kids again. Fucking responsibility. Yeah. Ugh. Some people think Joan intentionally moved her head. She was very depressed when this happened. Joan had also filed for divorce from William, but this was withdrawn. So she filed, she withdrew. It happens. Some people think it was his intention. I don't know. I think they were just off their tits. Yeah, I probs, uh, probs not. I, I, yeah, I think it was just like a super fucking dumb accident which fucking killed somebody. That's honestly the most probable cause. <laughs> but people definitely want to, you know, <sighs> read into it more. Well, it was fun too. In uh, 1985, in when Queer was published, he wrote uh, Forward, William wrote a Forward, and it said, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death. Oh. And to the realisation of the extent to which this event has motivated and formulated my writing. I'd, I would like to know more, though. Like, why? I know. Because you feel free now? Or <laughs> what, you fucking asshole? It inspired him? Oh. I don't know. Anyway. That's all I got. Oh. I could have gone deeper, but, you know, we've got to, you know, keep it neat. Thank you. We're under two hours, so that's good. <laughs> oh, bravo. <laughs> I was worried because I went for a long time. Um, do you have any thoughts? My thoughts are... Feelings, concerns, I, anything you want to raise with HR? I don't like him anymore. I'm upset about that. 
think the stuff about his son is really sad. Stuff about his son is awful. And the stuff about And like, leaving her just like to go and get ayahuasca. She was Ugh. in a real bad way as well. Like I don't think that I made enough of a mention about that. Someone said she looked I forget it was like a quote, it might have been like Jack Kerouac, but it was a quote about how she looked like the saddest, most lonely woman they'd ever seen in their oh. life as they dropped her off when he was away. It was just like uh, just I don't know. I feel for her. Have you ever seen the On the Road movie? Yes. With Christian, Kristen Kristen? Kirsten? Kirsten. Kirsten. Kirsten, whatever fucking Twilight name is. Um, I don't love it. No. But I love how Viggo Mortensen plays Burroughs very well. Yeah. And is it Amy Adams? Plays Joan? I think it is. And it's very good. Did you ever, um, oh, yeah, you have watched Kill Your Darlings, which is yeah. another, we both watched that in the lead up. And that's about the murder. Yeah. Not, what did you think? I thought that was well casted. I think the movie was good. I think Kill Your Darlings was a good movie. Yeah. But I think that the people who, like, I think. Oh, so good. Oh, good. <laughs> was it? No. Oh, are you going to say what? <laughs> okay, so I was watching it at home. <laughs> Should we say this? Yeah. <laughs> I was watching it at home. There is um, a sex scene between Lucian Carr and Alan Ginsberg, who's played by <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe, and someone <laughs> in my house walked in and said, Harry! Harry, what are you doing? Because <laughs> it was like, it was a, it's, a, it's, you know, not like a super intense sex scene, no. but you just don't often see Harry Potter having sex no. with another man. And it's you don't funny. see gay sex scenes that much, to be fair, between men. No, you don't. In mainstream cinema. It's true. But I did think it was funny. Like it was like, Harry, what? <laughs> Harry, no, what's happening? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and what about Ginny? And, and he has the glasses and everything. He does have the glasses. Oh, that's funny. He's very good, actually. As I think he's great. The guy who plays Ginsburg in the on the road is very good too. I'm not. I didn't love who played um, Sal Paradise. He wasn't like Carowack sexy enough. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sal played Sam Riley was the person and Jane, they say in this, was Amy Adams, so I'm sure oh, yeah. they just did her name differently. Well, yeah, because it was on the road. Oh, sorry, of course. You're right, we're right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, look, that was a, I think it could have been better. I love the music and the scenes with the dancing and the music and mm. when they would go to clubs and yeah. stuff. That was really well done. But it just was annoying. Maybe you just maybe I'm just more annoyed about what shitheads they are in my old age. I guess it's also I don't know. Like they're the kind of that's the kind of book that really becomes very important to you. Yeah, it's the kind of book where you're just like it opened your eyes to a whole bunch of things at a younger yeah. age. If you read it at a younger age, so. I can still read it now and really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, I book. started reading it again. It's beautiful. The writing is amazing. And I, you know, when I write poetry, which I do, um, I often find myself 
really enjoying like writing kind of that stream of consciousness kind of poetry. And I like to think, like if I'm reading a lot of beat poetry at the time, I find it really fun to write mm. in that in that sort of what's the fucking word? Free form. Yeah, but it's also got a jazzness to it. Oh, jazzy. It does. I don't know how to explain it any better than that. I just wanted to sing Scatman then, but I'm not <laughs> going to. Maybe after this I'll read you a few bars of howl in the way that I'm telling you that okay. I mean. And I'm gonna sing a bit of beep ba ba ba. All right, that's enough. What are we doing next week? We're doing some siblings. <gasps> We're doing our first ever Sibo mm. siblings. Siblings. We're very excited. Sibos. <laughs> Is that, that's not, that's. Oh, look, let's make it a thing. Okay. Got any Sibos? <laughs> Um, yeah, they're going to be good. They're going to be... That's a little advice for like a first date, like when it lulls. Got any Sibos? <laughs> Anyone for me? <laughs> what it's about your Rellos? You go see your Rellos? I actually hate the term Rellos We so say much. Rellos in Australia. But I fucking hate it. It means relatives. But let's bring Sibos. <laughs> I, I feel like this could be like some kind of racial slur that we're not aware of. If it is, let us know and on we our will Instagram. Cut that. <laughs> we will fucking yeah. Oh, you can. You could just let us know on the Instagram. You may send us a message. You could put a comment on just like some random post. We'll definitely see it. I'm very excited every time we get any kind of message or comment. We fucking love it. Be let us know that you listen to us because we do really feel like we're screaming into the void sometimes. On occasions, we're just screaming at each other. So, but wait, tell them, <laughs> tell them where they can find us. Oh, yeah, Amber. find us at Sorry He Sucks Pod on Instagram. Mm. You can find us on Facebook if you just write Sorry He Sucks, it'll come up. Yeah, um, we just love you and we thank you. We appreciate you. So yeah, see you next week for some. Bros. Potentially. Bros before hoes. Yeah, I think it's going to be a bit like Bros before hoes. <laughs> we have used multiple sources in the research for this podcast. All of these can be found in the show notes. This podcast was written by Kara Nissen and Amber Jones with music and engineering by Morgan Jones. DJ Morks. <laughs> Sorry. I like it.